0: Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science across the globe. I'm your host, Joe Shankweiler, a physician and former health tech executive now supporting startups and investors at Amazon Web Services. Today, I welcome Dr. Jim Min to the podcast. Dr. Min is the founder and CEO of Clearly a company using AI-enabled evaluation of coronary CT angiography to identify, characterize, and quantify plaque buildup to support physicians in determining a patient's risk of heart attack. Jim shares his thoughts on why cardiac imaging has become the standard of care, why specialty care is ripe for value-based care models, and how to keep your team focused on huge long-term goals. Enjoy. Enjoy. Dr. Jim Min, CEO and founder of Clearly, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. Jim, I'd love to hear more about your background and and what Clearly does.
1: Uh, absolutely, um, and thank you for asking. So my my background, I'm I'm trained as a cardiologist. Uh, I did all of my medical training at the University of Chicago. Um, in internal medicine and cardiology and advanced non-invasive imaging, and then came to New York City in 2005. I took a job at Cornell Medical College and New York Presbyterian Hospital where I spent the better part of 15 years before leaving to join the company full-time. The reason that's relevant is that some of the things that we were doing at Cornell and New York Presbyterian really informed the thesis of what we were doing at Clearly. And specifically, what we had focused on was uh, cardiovascular disease prevention. As you well know, we spend more than half of our healthcare dollars on the last six months of life. And we thought, like, what if we could put that towards the beginning, the left side of the curve rather than the right, and see whether or not we could prevent disease in a way that would maintain health and then also reduce overall healthcare costs. And so we had this very popular uh, prevention program, cardiovascular disease prevention program called Heart Health. And the reason that's relevant is that um, our, our program was different than any others. Like we would sit the patients down and say, look, you know, we don't care so much about what your cholesterol levels are or other surrogate markers of, of heart disease. And they said, well, everybody cares about what the cholesterol levels are. And we said, well, what, what, what we care about more is how much disease you have. And uh, we'd like to use the amount of disease that you have to guide our therapies so that we can prove that we can stop the progression of heart disease over time with lifestyle interventions and medical therapy. And um, what we realized was that that was, it it turned out to be a really, really popular program everybody really liked it. And in parallel to that, what we wanted to do was understand what we were seeing on the disease phenotype, the the non-invasive imaging, we used coronary CT scans. Um, we didn't fully understand it at the time, um, we, so we performed a series of large-scale, multi-center clinical trials to understand, hey, is, there, you know, is it just one disease? Is it a multitude of diseases? How can we treat it? How can we stop it? And whatnot. And so we learned a lot from those, um, those uh, clinical trials that we incorporated into the clinical cardiovascular disease prevention program. The major issue was that um, there's two, like the first was that it was taking us so long. It was a very time intensive process where we were taking up to eight hours, 10 hours to analyze a single patient's image. And we knew it was never really going to scale past the Cornell walls. And so we had to come up with ways that we could automate that and make it more precise, accurate and scalable. And then the second problem that we realized was that uh, other than advanced imagers, nobody understood what, was, what we were seeing on the images, and uh, we had to figure out a way to com- effectively communicate that information so that clinicians and patients could really ingest it. And so we decided that those were the two tasks and unmet needs that we needed to fulfill. And so we decided, hey, let's let's start a company to really try to deliver all of these kinds of it, um, powerful knowledge and information uh, to people at scale, so that it could be standardized and available anywhere globally. And that was the Nidus clearly.
0: That's great. Yeah. Now, I um, when did you run that that multi center trial? Just out of curiosity.
1: Well, we ran a series of them. And so, you know, they were probably all in over 15 years, 20 multicenter clinical trials. But I mean, you raise a really good point, like, and I think this is germane to the topic at hand, but about a week and a half ago, the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology um, released 2021 chest pain guidelines. And what you saw was the elevation of coronary CT scans to level 1A um, above any other testing modality. So it really was a great thing for coronary CT angiography. And it was really due to a series of large scale randomized control trials that proved the superiority of this test over any other modality or testing method for evaluation of patients with coronary heart disease. Like for, you know, just personal satisfaction, a number of the trials that we had done were cited in those guidelines. So we felt like, yep, you know, the first half of our career we spent really um, doing the clinical medicine, um, establishing the science in a highly rigorous fashion. And then the second part of our career, we really wanted to create products and services that could meaningfully touch people in a way that could improve their health.
0: That And that's exactly what I was getting at. Like what the, as, as folks who listen to this know, I'm I'm also a physician. And I always try to think about where these innovations fit when I was Uh, on the wards or or in the classroom studying that. And uh, uh, cardiac uh, imaging in this regard was like a footnote. um, When I was in medical school, it was the kind of thing that was like the last slide in the presentation of, um, you know, that the what's next, uh, dot, dot, dot uh, kind of slide. And it's, it's really uh, satisfying to talk to somebody who was leading the charge to make that what's next, the current state of play um, in such a critical area. So that must be, um, I know you have a a team of folks that worked on this um, from an academic perspective and now from a commercial perspective, but uh, that must be really satisfying to to see that trajectory play out.
1: Yeah. I mean, to go from the last slide to not the last slide is probably a a good transition, but I mean, you raise a a point that like brings up some thoughts of like the way I trained as um, as I was in medical school and in internal medicine residency. And I'll give you three examples. Like, you know, as an internal medicine physician 20 years ago, we would recommend to women to do monthly breast exams for early detection of breast cancer, or we would look for blood in the stool as an early sign of colon cancer. And, you know, for some patients, we would recommend a chest x-ray for early identification of, of lung cancer. And what we found is that all of those three things fell by the wayside. Nobody recommends them anymore at all. And the reason is that they were supplanted by advanced imaging, right? Right. So for breast cancer, we do 3D digital breast homosynthesis. For colon cancer, we do colonoscopies. For lung cancer, we do high resolution lung CT. And the reason we do advanced imaging is so that we can phenotype the actual disease. And if you think about it from a cardiac standpoint, we don't do it. We do it exactly the way that we were trained 20 years ago, which right. is check some cholesterol levels that miss the majority of patients who have a heart attack, wait for patients to have chest pain and symptoms, which misses the majority of the patients who who actually never have any symptoms before their heart attack. And then we look for these stress tests and demonstrations of what's called ischemia, which is actually not a disease state; it's the sequel of the actual disease, which is the atherosclerosis and the plaque buildup itself. So, I think that, like um, what you said, resonates with me a lot because we're fundamentally trying to move ourselves towards direct disease-based evaluations and care rather than surrogate markers of care.
0: And you touched on this, but I'd, I'd love to to circle back and put a put a fine point on it, basically. What about, what about the startup private sector commercial mission or vision for this um, drew you to a startup route? Like what, like what, what could you do in a startup that you didn't think you could do inside, you know, the, the venerable academic and, and research institutions that you'd been a part of?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. Like, I think the first answer to that is that, you know, what we realized was that Um, You know, if you're doing what we do, we do a lot of computer vision, image processing. We do a lot of machine learning. Um, The talent is on the outside of the academic institutions, right? It's not on the inside. And in this regard, I think it represents sort of a paradigm shift. If you're going to do basic discovery for genomics or proteomics or, you know, um, systems biology, like academics is where you will stay because that's where the true talent is and where the funding is if you're trying to do machine learning, machine intelligence, all of this AI, like the the talent is on the outside of the academic walls. And so we recognize that if we wanted to work with the best, we had to to leave the academic confines. And then the second, it's like one that I didn't realize until sort of in hindsight, but, you know, we got a couple of products through the FDA in about two and a half years time after um, starting the company. And what I realized is that as academic folks like we would, do a paper, we would uh, do a project. We would develop an algorithm. We would publish it, and then the algorithm would just sit on a shelf and not really help anybody. And so there was no way we could actually transition this uh, and translate the research into meaningful solutions that would actually help people, unless we actually came out and tried to make it as a product. The stark realization was that what we realized was doing the research, um, creating the algorithm, uh, you, you're not even one percent towards towards the goal of creating a product, right? There's so right. much that goes into it beyond just simply the research. So, um, but that was the major reason was really to try to get products and services to people, you know, in a meaningful way that they could use and ingest on a daily basis.
0: I, I love the early origin stories, not just the founding idea, but how you actually build a team um, from, from my own experience building teams at at early and growth stage and and various stages of of startups and companies how did you approach your early team formation given that you came with such deep expertise on the science and and the kernel from which the company would be built but there was commercial interest there were you know growth there were you know additional technological needs what did that early team founding look like at clearly
1: yeah, it's a it's a great question. I think that's probably the most important. I think uh, the purpose of what your company is doing. So the which I think speaks to the total addressable market, right? Like I think that's probably the most important thing when considering a company. Like, what is the question that you're trying to solve for? And is it a is it a meaningful enough that it's willing um, that that you would be willing to devote your whole life to it? Right. right. Because somebody gave me some. Some pretty good advice back in the day. They said, "Look, it's just as hard to build a bad company that then it <laughs> that will be unsuccessful than it is to build a good company that will scale." And it's true, right? That's like it's hard line. no matter yeah, no matter what you're making, building a business is really really difficult. Um, for our sake, like what we did was we we cherry picked a couple of folks that like we just knew were superstars, and those superstars um, you know had a friends and they recruited more superstars, and and so we just found ourselves like sort of iteratively and gradually through our networks, um, growing a team of, of athletes, right, where you could really put them anywhere, and they would succeed. Um, and then as we became a little bit more substantive as a team, we said, okay, let's think through sort of how we want to to do this. And then specifically, I think relevant to this discussion, in the recent past, like the last year, year and a half or so, we really started to think about what does the commercial team look like. Right. And and what we very firmly believe is that you know we should uh, develop um, a paradigm where uh, that fits best in value-based healthcare, um, because I think that needs to be the future. You know, sort of that triple threat and doing prevention, early diagnosis and treatment, lower costs, increased patient satisfaction. If we, so we, we specifically sort of looked for those types of people. We also wanted to have enough folks who had cardiovascular experience. So if you look at our leadership team, probably about two thirds of us have done cardiovascular for our whole lives. And we also wanted to do something where we built a strong foundation. And so about two thirds of the leadership team has exited multi-billion dollar hyper growth start- healthcare startups. And so there's enough muscle memory on that team to figure out, you know, how do you scale that business without breaking it? Um, how do you maintain culture while you do so? Um, and then how do you make sure that everybody keeps their eye on on the prize of the mission and the mission that drives us? And so I don't know if that answers your question, Joe.
0: No, no, that's perfect. And um... In general, um, one thing, as I've learned more about clearly, and you and I have chatted in in previous occasions, it's really a company and a mission on your end that straddles multiple areas here because it's not easy. the The company and the product line, um, they're not. It's not easily pigeonholed into a pure diagnostic play. Um, And you referenced value-based care as an angle, which is very in vogue, but also very much, you know, in keeping with the trajectory of of payment models and and delivery models even now in healthcare, particularly in the United States, um, but also globally. Um, So is that, I'd imagine that's intentional not to be pigeonholed, um, where you have elements of patient education, of provider education, of including primary care providers in the mix um, and not just, you know, we're going to focus on the the deep tech diagnostic piece of it and doing that at the cutting edge. You're going to do that. You can do that and all the other stuff.
1: I think so, yeah. I mean, the, what we recognized was that there was this massive communication problem that you can have the best information, but if p- the stakeholders within the care pathway don't understand it, then it really serves no purpose at all. So, you know, we when we set out to do the company, just as you noted, like we never tried to be an AI imaging company. In fact, my prediction is that most of those will actually not succeed in a meaningful way. And the reason is that I don't think it solves a big enough problem. Like if you tell me that, you know, you can make me slightly faster um, while reading studies, that that I mean that's that's great, but like that's not, that doesn't, I, I don't think move the the needle in this world what we fundamentally recognized was like we spent 70 years as a field of cardiology, never actually measuring heart disease. And so what we said was, look, we need to, we need to comprehensively phenotype this disease. And then we need to actually translate it for everybody in ways that, that have meaning and whether it's like precision diagnostics to improve diagnosis and, and support doctors with their treatment, or whether it's reducing waste, as you well know, like 40% of our healthcare dollars in the U S are are wasted. We, right. They don't go to anything meaningful. So we wanted to really try to affect a lot of different stakeholders. And that way it's been um, both a boon and, and a challenge too, right? When you have so many shots on goal in terms of your go-to-market strategy, like you got to focus on a, on a few. And wh- what really drove us, what drives us as a company is you yeah, have this value-based care. And as you pointed out, it's very much in vogue and almost like um, almost like it's a, to the point where it, it's a cliche, but what is not, I don't think in vogue yet is subspecialty value-based care, particularly in cardiology. And that's, I think where we could fit quite well.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. And, I, and I, I, it is in one of the, it reminds me a bit of, um, I made the transition from clinical medicine to public sector work and then into the private sector startup space around the time that big data was going from being a thing that had to be in every article that was on my Google News feed to something that then was actionable and usable and had come into its own. And as it became less, um, you know, less the top headline eyeball grabber um, and more of just a functional element, it seems like it's it's. It, it's allowed it to actually become functional and actionable. And my guess is value-based care, we're seeing that same moment with, with value-based care, where we're talking about it, talking about it as we sort of grapple with it as a, as a clinical and, and societal group. And, um, and eventually, it'll just be that's how care is delivered um, in some form or fashion.
1: I agree with you. And I think
0: that this whole concept of
1: data and value-based care, they're intrinsically linked, right? Like if you understand the data, you will understand how to take care of folks. I guess I'd make just two comments. Like you hear a lot of folks talking about big data and and what they, but they don't have data. What they have are data points, mm-hmm. right? Data points. Like I can, you know, you can download something and have trillions and trillions of data points, but it, it, it's not actionable and it's not helpful. So I think you really have to organize and curate and communicate the lessons of that data. The other comment I'd make is that people always talk about big data, but they ignore the small data, right? Like, mm. and what we what we are doing, what I, I what one of my concerns about that sort of the large data sets is that it it just goes to exactly what we've been doing, which is this population based. Hey, we found some trends here and some significance there, but. I think we need to go to individualized and precision medicine, and that is really understanding some of the small data that's out there on an individual basis, and how to make those actionable as well.
0: In terms of barriers, I'm you know I'm always um, I realize how how hard a group physicians are as a user base if you're marketing to them even if they're not the end buyer right They they can be quite hard to to get for uh to uptake with um you mentioned communication and education um are those the main barriers to adoption that you've seen in the technology although now as you reference, like it's becoming the the underlying principles have become more than mainstream um but i'm i'm curious have you seen it slow uptake or are you uh would I be pleasantly surprised? I should say, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I think it depends on the environment that you go into. I think in some, some
1: areas and facets of healthcare, we've seen extremely rapid adoption and in others um, we've not, we've seen sort of this, the pace is more molasses like And I think that as I think about why, why is that um, fundamentally in a fee for service model, I think that they're, you know, we're rewarded to do more, right? Like we're, if you, are busier and you do more procedures and you do more tests you will you will um you'll get a higher salary to take home and i think that there's this perception even on on the patient end is that if the doctor does more then it's the doctor is cares more about me and so I, I think we need to do the right test for the right patient at the right time period and that's what needs to drive us that's why i think in a fee-for-service model you tend to see economic misalignment, right? That, hey, I don't have to do this test. It may not be that informative, but you know, if I do it, then personally I gain. And I'm not like in any way saying that people are doing that deliberately, but you become sort of habituated to the way you practice because it's the way that you practice for the last 20 years and it's the one that, you know, is, is predictable. So I think that's the it sort of leads into the second point, which is just the pace of healthcare. Is extremely slow to move, right? And everybody, you know, talks about clinical practice guidelines, but then they always say by the time they're published, they're already obsolete because they don't include the last three or four years of, of evidence. So I think it's probably fee for service, economic misalignments, and and the, just the pace of healthcare. I do think though that for cardiology, the guidelines tend to be viewed biblically, and so if they are in the guidelines, like. Things tend to to work that way and evolve towards that standard of care, and that I think is a huge wind, at least in our company's sale. As um, CT is now officially the standard of care.
0: Right. I mean, it's it, I'm in reference to value-based care, I've spent a lot of time thinking and 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 reasoning through um, the elements that go into that, and you know, uh, I've done other presentations on this for for physician groups, I always used to be a general surgeon, and I've, I've done this for academic surgeons previously, more of a, a plea to, to sort of understand some of these uh, methods, because that's the trend that's coming out there. And uh, one of the quotes that I use in those presentations uh, are from you know the, the king of value investing in a lot of ways, Warren Buffett. Um, he says, price is what you pay, value is what you get. And so what I'm reminded of, and as you're talking about the tech, technology and methods underlying clearly, and, and now part of the cardiology standards are, um, even if it is costly, um, and in many cases, less costly um, than the reams of tests that you might get otherwise, you get a lot for it. And you're pro- you've you proven that value that's embedded in it. Um, and, and that's a really powerful thing in medicine, because being able to point to that with actual dollars and numbers and outcomes, um, you know, that's, that's the way of the world now. And it, it, it should be the standard for everything, um, certainly in medicine. But, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely um, an element you have on your side now, um, and I'm sure that will drive adoption at a much, rap, rap, much more rapid pace.
1: Yeah. And then I, I, exactly. I couldn't agree with you more, Joe. And one thing that I will say is that when I c- came out, you know, we'd spent the 15, 16 years doing pure science. And so mm-hmm. the whole foundation of the company is rooted in science. I guess for about 30 days, I sort of dumbly thought, well, we proved the science. So now we just have <laughs> to make the product and everybody will believe it. That That definitely is not the case. And so, you know, we are committed, like right now we're doing 12 multicenter clinical trials within the company um, to prove exactly what you said, like to say, you know, that, you know, this triple threat thing is sort of a, a generic, genericized um, phrase, but I think it's important. Like, let's do prevention, let's reduce costs, let's improve patient satisfaction and lit- health literacy. Like, those are the goals. And um, you can't expect anyone just to believe you. You got to go out and prove it with the, with the clinical trials.
0: I'm struck by this is a, a long term play. I mean, this is something harnessing forces that are happening, you know, a, a generational shift in a lot of ways in the way medicine is practiced and paid for and, and thought through. Um, and, and you all are, are riding that that wave through the process. How have you cultivated that long term view uh, for for your leadership team, uh, for your investors? Um, this is not a this is not a, a you know, couple of years get the app out there and everybody cashes in. I mean, this is this is a long term play.
1: Yeah, it's a really great question. Like um, so let's rewind five years ago and our toolbox to prevent heart attacks, um, which is the number one cause of death um, for men and women globally. Right. Somebody will die of cardiovascular disease every one point seven seconds in this world. And more than half of the people who will die of heart attacks will have absolutely no symptoms before they die. And so what we have done as a field is fundamentally waited for patients to come in with symptoms. So it's not a great, it's probably not the ideal approach when the majority of people don't have symptoms. So when we started the company, we said, okay, what are we trying to achieve? And what is the world that we could envision? I can envision a world without heart attacks. Um, it it will be a silent revolution. You just suddenly, you won't hear about heart attacks so much. And everybody knows someone, right, who went out for a run and Mm -hmm. never came back or who went to bed and never woke up because it is the most common cause of death. And so five years ago, what was in our armamentarium, we had some information and understanding of lifestyle modifications, diet and physical activity, and we had statin medications. That was about it. And then now fast forward five years to today, we have more than 25 FDA approved medications in the last four years that are all blockbuster medications in terms of reducing heart attacks and strokes. So I did an exercise one weekend and I took all of those medications and I looked at the relative percent reduction in heart attacks due to each one of those. And I just started to add them up just to see what would happen is if you use them all. And it turns out the relative reduction in heart attacks was 94%. So I'm solidly convinced that we, ha- what we have today in our toolbox is enough to eradicate heart attacks. So then you say, well, then why, why aren't we? Why is it still the number one cause of death and the, the, the rate has been flat for the last 50 years? It's because we do a very poor job identifying people who are sick. And so... I think we need to pinpoint each individual at risk and get them on, on the right therapy. And we can truly eradicate this disease from the, from the face of the, of the globe. So the way we think of it is in sort of two different buckets. There is the chest pain patient or the patient who presents with shortness of breath. There's about eight to 10 million of those in the outpatient setting. And probably you could attack on another seven, eight million uh, in the emergency department across the the US. So about 15, 16 million people. It's an important thing to address those folks. They are coming in, they are scared, they don't know what's going on and we need to address their symptoms and we need to uh, optimize their care. And then there's this other um, bucket of people that we as a field have historically generally ignored, right? The asymptomatic folks who are at risk and represent the majority of people who are having heart attacks. So what we really wanted to do was become and develop ourselves into an all-in-one solution for heart disease across the spectrum of disease. Whether you have symptoms, whether you don't have symptoms, in the symptomatic population, um, we, we see clearly as the future um, standard of care of the way that you would deliver and identify patients uh, with suspected heart disease. And then the asymptomatic population, um, we are committed to doing the science to prove that we should get to global worldwide screening, similar to a mammogram uh, for breast cancer detection, similar to colonoscopy. Um, we, we, We have this rhetorical question that we ask ourselves and say, do you ever wonder why we use advanced imaging to prevent the most common cause of cancer, but not the most common cause of death? And the reason is we haven't had the tools to be able to characterize and phenotype the disease in a way that was clinically meaningful. And that is our goal. So in the symptomatic to become the standard of care and in the asymptomatic um, to produce the science that is rigorous enough um, to validate our technologies uh, for global worldwide
0: screening. That makes perfect sense. No, that's, um, as long-term visions go, that's about as good as it gets, uh, you know, you know, tackle the largest cause of death worldwide, but that's not so bad. Um, and I'm always curious for folks that have made the jump over from academia or from the research world, um, what, you were a leader in that space. Um, and, and I'm sure will be, um, from your role at Clearly, but what are some of the, what are some of the big changes for you going from leadership in that world to now leading this, you know, high growth startup?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. Like, um, you know, I when I, I loved my job at Cornell and New York Presbyterian, I had amazing boss, I had amazing freedom. And we, we were um, supported by philanthropy, by uh, philanthropy, by an amazing donor. And I got to just come to work and ask questions and how to improve the world and improve healthcare within cardiology. Just absolutely loved it. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to, everybody said, look, jump. If Once you jump, the net will appear. I can tell you, Joe, there's no net. You can't make payroll at the end of the month. Like um, there's the net's not there. And I guess the way that I equated is that, um, you know, academics is in many respects, like uh, singles tennis, right? Like you, you know, you have a lab and we had a large lab, I think at our, our biggest, we were over a hundred people and in our academic lab. Um, But it's very much like singles tennis in that all major decisions go through you. And, you know, it's sort of like whatever your vision and and what you want to do, that's how the the team sort of adapts. And I look at um, building a company sort of like hockey, right? Like if you took an aerial view of, of um, folks playing hockey, it looks like an orchestra, right? Like they're just constantly in sync. And the one on the left knows exactly where the the one on the right is gonna be in the next two seconds. And that's where he passes the puck. And, you know, that kind of synchrony and is there's something beautiful about that when people are all completely in sync towards a common mission and common goal. And I think in that vein, sort of relatedly, you know, this whole idea of cross-functional collaboration is something that we say a lot in, in company building, you never hear it once in academics. And so in, in, you know, in the company, everybody knows about cross-functional collaboration, we're gonna do it and, and we orchestrate like the one-on-ones and the weeklies um, around the ability for people with different expertises to be able to come together and learn from each other and grow. And I, I don't think we do that well in academics, it's very much a, it's a one-person one show um, but I think the cross-functional collaboration, this sort of orchestration, like a hockey hockey team, like that's the only way you can deliver products at at scale. And to me, like my academic career, the most gratifying part of it was that I had the opportunity to collaborate with all these folks in different parts of the world, whether East Asia or Middle East or Europe, South America and whatnot. I think thus far, the the major thing that I'm, I feel so gratified by is just to meet truly brilliant people in completely diverse areas of expertise um, that teach me on a daily basis. And together we're stronger than, uh, than standing alone. I I think that's the major difference that I've seen between academic medicine and a startup.
0: In that vein, any parting advice for, for other folks exploring this path?
1: Yeah. I mean, I can tell you some, probably, um, if I had known six years ago what I know today, probably wouldn't have jumped out, probably would have stayed really? at, uh, in my academic job, because it's been, it's hard. Like, I mean, so people should know it's really hard. Conversely, I will say also this, if you see me back in academics, it's because I have no other options. Like, I've really found what we do on a daily basis to be extremely meaningful. And from, from my own perspective, I spent that first half of my career doing clinical medicine and the research and clinical trials to support why I was practicing that way. Second half of my career is to deliver products at scale and really to try to make it so that we do have that standard of care and we do do early detection. So if I could leave people with any one thing is um, solve a meaningful problem Um, because I see, I hear like, and you probably hear it all the time, is like, oh, I'm a serial entrepreneur. Like um, I don't know what that means. Like I'm not. Like I'm I'm mission driven towards eradicating heart attacks from the face of the earth. It's what I've chosen to spend my life uh, doing. Uh, but I think it's a meaningful problem given that it kills more people than any other disease entity in this world. And I would encourage others to just say, is the problem that I'm I'm building this company around a problem worth solving? And if it is, go for it. And, and it's going to be hard. And we have a chief revenue officer who's got this phrase that says, embrace the suck because it's gonna <laughs> suck at some point in time. But he's like, but if you keep your eye on the goal and the mission, the highs aren't too high, the lows aren't too low and you get to live a meaningful life. So that that would be my advice to others.
0: Dr. Jim Min, CEO and founder of Clearly. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and rating. It helps others find us. To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please go to aws.amazon.com/startups.